Well, my aim this morning is to summarize the first 11 chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, as he writes in chapter 1 and verse 7. So we'll do that by way of introduction. I'd like then to rethink, help you rethink the idea of sacrifice. Hopefully to see it in a more joyful, positive light. And we'll consider what Paul writes in the opening two verses of chapter 12 to help us do that. After which we'll do some body building work. Now this is thinking about building up the body of Christ, the congregation of God's people. What Paul teaches to the church in Rome is as relevant to us now as it was to them then. And then beyond that, we'll look at the do's and don'ts of verses 14 to 21. So we'll think about serving, that's from verse 3 through to verse 13, and then on to look at how to not serve within the context of church life, but serve beyond the time that we spend together as the people of God, living as the people of God, outside of our fellowship with one another. Of course, we have to remember that as Paul writes these words, he's writing to people who are very new to the Christian faith. I remember when uh, I started at the Christian Institute as a communications officer, I had the title, but I didn't even know how to turn on the computer and the screen and use anything that I was required to use. So I had the name. I was a communications officer, but I had so much to learn. There was so much that I was unfamiliar with. And that would be true for the believers in Rome. They've come to trust in Christ, but how are they to live? How are they to function together as a congregation of God's people? And how are they, they to live in their everyday lives to honor the Lord that they've come to trust? So here at City, we're all professionals. We're all very familiar with what God requires of us, both as we come together as God's people and as we live for him each and every day. So perhaps the message that will come through through the rest of the chapter beyond verses one and two is the more and more that we come across in scripture so often. Knowing these things, let us do them more and more. Let us grow in our knowledge and our love and our service of the Lord. So to our introduction, Romans chapters 1 through to 11. John Newton, a lost, blind, sinful wretch of a man, transformed by the amazing love of God, writes 
as a pastor and a friend to a new Christian who's disappointed, downcast, disoriented by unexpected suffering. The letter is dated March the 18th, 1767. I'm not reading all of it, just a short section of it. Let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out who come to him, why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Therefore, you'll see in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The NIV we have in view of, in view of God's mercies. Mercies of which Paul has written extensively about in this letter so far. Our sins are many. He reminds the believers in Rome, no one is righteous, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the righteous wrath of God is to come upon this rebellious world, upon the envious, the deceitful, the foolish, the proud, the disobedient. But though our sins are many, his mercies are more. Having detailed the plight of fallen humanity, he reminds these new believers of that glorious truth of the gospel of God. There's a superabundance of gospel language, of gospel truths, of gospel gifts in the first 11 chapters of his letter in which they have come to believe and to know. He writes of hope and peace and joy and love and freedom and forgiveness, of salvation, redemption, righteousness, justification, sanctification, resurrection, and eternal life. All theirs through faith in Christ and his finished work upon the cross. All known and experienced through the work of the Holy Spirit within them. Therefore, Paul writes, on the basis of all that you have heard, all that you have believed, all that you have received, all that you experience in Christ, in view of God's multiple mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Take in the view, Paul says, 
And on the basis of what you see, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. What comes to mind when you think about that word? What does sacrifice involve? What's its flavor? What's its character? Here's an excellent little book all about sacrifice. Maybe you've read it. It's entitled Sacrifice. It's by a chap called Simon Gillibode. And I recommend it. It is a profoundly challenging book. And he takes this verse, chapter 12, verse 1, as his springboard for what he goes on to write. Here's a, here's a sample, stirring stuff. Robert Germain Thomas felt God's call to reach Korea with the gospel in 1866, following a massacre of about 8,000 local believers by the regime there. He boarded a US trading vessel and sailed up to Pyongyang. Despite repeated warnings to turn back, they kept going until they were eventually stranded on a sandbank. The Koreans set fire to their ship and all aboard perished. But before Thomas died, he threw Bibles from the burning ship to people who were stood on the riverbank watching the events unfold. Some took the Bibles home with them and used the pages as wallpaper in their homes. But over time, curiosity grabbed their attention and they began reading the wallpaper, reading the scriptures that they pasted up on their wall and became believers. One young man's life lived and laid down with such urgency had led to the expansion of God's fledgling kingdom in Korea. I'm not sure how many deaths he mentions in 47 pages, quite a few, along with a whole host of other things, including grenade assaults and countless sufferings. But I wonder if he's missed an essential dimension to the scriptural teaching on suffering. Just backtrack. In view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Think on God's amazing pity, God's grace divine, that love beyond degree. Surely those things stir up in your hearts wonder and adoration and joy and praise. Do you know the old hymn? But we, can, we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar, the altar of sacrifice we lay. For the favor he shows 
and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Our sacrifice is done in joy, with delight. And so God brings, as we do so, joy and delight and favour and happiness. And just cast your minds back to that Old Testament reading. Sacrifice and consecration accompanied by gladness and singing and thanksgiving and feasting and great joy that went on for day after day after day. So how is it that sacrifice is invariably accompanied by celebration? Why is sacrifice marinated in joy? Because sacrifice, as Paul speaks of here, brings us into closer fellowship with God. And in fellowship with him, Paul writes, we are better able to discern his holy and acceptable and perfect will. Don't think this sacrifice is a once-for-all act. It's something we're to be constantly mindful of. It's a daily living sacrifice, an every place living sacrifice, a lifetime of living sacrifice. As long as you are living, it is to be a sacrifice, devoted wholly to the Lord. And in so living, nothing of any worth is lost. In so living, nothing of any worth is lost. Let's move on now to the practicalities, as Paul spells them out now in the remainder of the chapter. The opening two verses don't stand alone. Paul says that what he goes on to write about is what a living sacrifice actually looks like. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. This is what it means to be devoted to the Lord. Paul begins from verse 3 to verse 13 with bodybuilding. If we love God, we'll love God's people as he loves his people. And for us specifically here, we love the congregation of God's people that we meet with morning and evening and in various ways throughout the week. And we'll desire for God's people, for the congregation of God's people, what God desires for his people in fellowship with him. So each living sacrifice 
is blessed by God, Paul writes, with a grace. Verse 3, just as he has received a grace as an apostle to build up the body of Christ. Each will receive a gift. Verse 6, having gifts that differ, an ability that is supercharged by the presence and power and spirit of God. And these gifts, these graces, are given exclusively, entirely, wholly to be used for the benefit of God's people. These are gifts given for others, not for ourselves. And as we can see from the gifts or graces Paul mentions here, um, from verse 6 onwards, they fall into three specific areas. These gifts or graces are given that the people of God might be taught, that the people of God might be led, and that the people of God might be provided for and cared for. The list that Paul gives isn't exhaustive. It's just an illustration of the variety of gifts that God gives to his people to this end, that they be taught, that they be led, that they be provided for and cared for. For taught, we could have fed. Fed, led, and cared for is, of course, uh, a picture that comes time and time again in Scripture of God's people as a flock. A flock needs feeding. A flock needs leading. And a flock needs to be provided for and cared for. Paul begins, you'll notice, with the gift of prophecy in verse 6. I think that this heads the list because this is a priority. This is to be first. For all of the other gifts come from the faithful proclamation of the truth of God's word. I've been using as my Bible guide each day um, a commentary on Matthew chapter, chapters 5, 6, and 7, written by William Tyndale. He died in 1536, so it's from a long time ago. Of course, he was martyred in 1536 for translating the Bible into English to make it readily available for people to read without it being interpreted for them by the priest. And he helpfully, I think, says a, a prophet, someone who prophesies, is someone who expounds and interprets scripture. What we would normally call preaching, the preaching of God's word, by which the flock of God are fed. Through which our knowledge and love of God grows through which we are helped to grow up into him who is the head of this congregation, the Lord Jesus 
himself. Alongside preaching, Paul also mentions teaching. This would be less interpreting and expounding, more passing on that which has been received, a body of teaching. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that body of teaching being the message of the gospel, but also the apostles' teaching. We read of the early church devoting itself to the apostles' teaching. We have that recorded for us in um, the New Testament in its entirety, the apostles' teaching. This is what we are to learn. This is to instruct us. This is what we're to know and to believe and to obey. So you've got preaching, we've got teaching. The final word-based gift is that of exhortation or encouragement. It's the same word for comforter, someone who comes alongside with something from God's word that is a help, that heartens, that blesses, that keeps you going in your love and commitment and devotion to the Lord. If you've been part of Matt and Ali's chat, you'll have seen lots of scripture being shared. Look at what God has to say. Surely this is relevant to you at this time. Surely this will encourage and help you. Maybe we ought to have a church WhatsApp group where we do that constantly. But we should be doing it constantly, all of the time, encouraging one another to live faithfully for Christ. Then we've got leading gifts that are mentioned. There are two specifically here. One is serving which is related to the Greek word from which we get deacon. This is practical leading. This is leading a practical ministry that benefits the people of God. Of course, practical ministries are inspired and informed and directed by the Lord himself through his spirit. They're even practical works of service in the congregation of God's people are to be done to his glory and his praise and also leading leading in verse 8 which is eldership pastoring shepherding God's people and then there are caring and sharing gifts those who contribute to do so generously providing the finances that the people of God might be able to be fed through God's word, that worship might be able to take place, that practical needs are met within the fellowship through the generosity of God's people. And then there are acts of mercy. That's just doing those things that are necessary when people are in need, but doing them in the Lord's name and for the Lord's sake. And all of these things are to be carried out faithfully, full of faith, in proportion to our faith, meaning hand in hand with our faith. These are expressions of our faith. 
Better still, these are expressions of the faith. The things that we do point to the truth of God's word and point to God himself and the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And it's not just what you do, but it's the way that you do it. Teaching, preaching, leading, serving, caring, and sharing to be done. Verse 9, in love, from a good heart, a sincere heart, for the right motives, in humility. with brotherly affection. As for members of the same household, the same family, without distinction. And all to be done fervently. Verse 11, do not be slothful in any of these responsibilities, but be fervent. Fervent in spirit. I think perhaps we ought to capitalize the spirit there. Fervent in the spirit, set on fire by the spirit of God, for we are serving the Lord in all of these responsibilities. It is in his name that we do these things, and therefore they should be done in the same way that he himself would do them, with the character of the Lord being formed in us and expressed through us. And finally, verses 14 to 21. I don't think Paul prepared this with my sermon in mind. So now everything falls neatly under the heading of our responsibility, our duties to our neighbours. But I think the majority do. Though there are other things that are clearly directed to believers and not in relation to our uh, good neighbourliness. And I think we have in, in this list of do's and don'ts two areas where, where we uh, encounter our neighbours, if you like. One is when they are hostile towards us because we are believers. They persecute us. And then those who may not be hostile, we have a responsibility towards them too, Paul says, to live out our faith in a way, in each instance, that hopefully brings them to come to know Christ for themselves. So the heaping of burning coals isn't in vindictiveness that they might suffer more when God reveals his wrath, but they might be brought to repentance. That they might feel through what they do against God's people, something of the judgment of God upon them for doing so, that they might come to trust in God themselves. For we know elsewhere in scripture, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. So this cannot be to alienate eternally, but rather, hopefully, to see them come to a knowledge of gospel truth themselves. 
So, how are we to respond when we're treated badly by our work colleagues, our neighbours, our family members who are not in Christ, even strangers, because we love him and seek to follow him? We're to bless them. Bless them with kindness, even. If they're hungry, to feed them. If they're thirsty, to give them something to drink. Bless those who persecute you. Incidentally, I've got Open Doors image up there because they've just released their annual report on global persecution of Christians. They say that Christian persecution has grown dramatically over the past 30 years. Christians now face very high to extreme levels of persecution in 76 countries when they first started putting this report together in 1993. It was just in some 40 countries. Across the world, more than 360 million Christians now experience high levels of persecution, the largest such figure to date. That's one in seven Christians suffer extreme or high levels of persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. Over the last year, 5,621 Christians have been killed for their faith. The majority, 89% in Nigeria. And in North Korea, if someone is caught with a Bible, in prayer, reading Christian literature or singing a hymn, they can expect to be arrested, sent to labor camps, tortured and even executed. Where one body, we weep with those who weep, we pray for those who suffer. We're bound to them through being a part of the universal body of Christ. So we must be aware of our responsibility to them as well. For us, we don't suffer that degree of persecution here at the moment. But we never know when we may face the same challenges. So how are we to respond to evil? With blessing and with kindness. And how are we to conduct ourselves more generally? Well, I think rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep can equally apply to our neighbours. A baby is born. We rejoice with them at the gift of new life. There's been a success. We can share in that. But we can similarly weep with them in their sorrow, in their hardships, through their losses, and in so doing, we show something of the character of God. We share our faith in Christ with them. So, in view of God's mercies, with joy, 
Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Serve the body of Christ, the congregation of God's people, where God has placed you here. Teach, lead, care, and share as God directs and enables. And love your neighbours, even if your neighbour is your enemy. Let's sing of God's 